Good morning, everyone. It is really a great pleasure for us to be with you this morning. My wife, Meredith, is here with me. Uh, she has uh, been by my side for over, just over 25 years, so I'm very thankful uh, for, for that. We have, just by brief, very brief uh, introduction, we do have uh, three children, and uh, they've heard me preach so many times, they said, Dad, you're fine on your own. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, it's not that. They, uh, actually, I have one who's away this summer uh, working at a uh, camp ministry down in North Carolina, so thankful. To, actually dropped her off very early this morning at the airport uh, to head down there. And then we have our oldest uh, son, who's a rising senior in college, and then our youngest, uh, she just graduated high school on Friday night, so it's been a busy full weekend for us. And, uh, you know, I, for those of you who realize it wasn't Tim today, you had an opportunity to call in sick. I mean, you could just run out the door, but uh, I'm thankful, thankful for each of you who are here. We too, like you, my wife and I, we will miss uh, Tim and Hannah Miller. Uh, he's been our Sunday school teacher uh, at Inner City, so we'll certainly miss uh, the uh, privilege we've had of being under his teaching ministry and very thankful for the impact that they've had over the years uh, at Inner City and uh, very thankful for the ministry they've had here. He speaks of this church family with great affection. He really does. And he's been very thankful for the opportunity to, to minister alongside with, with those of you who are here. Uh, this morning, I'd like us to take a look at just a few verses for a few minutes this morning uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So turn in your Old Testament portion of the scriptures, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In just a moment, I'm going to read through uh, verses 15 through 18. You know, it's funny how life is often contrary to expectation, Right? Sometimes we expect certain things to go a certain way, or sometimes just things go wrong when we think that they're going to go right. Uh, you know, the, the, the time that you plan not to go out on the boat on the water, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day. And then when you make plans and everyone's going to show up for some big barbecue, it's raining, right? I mean, it's just the way life goes. Uh, you know, you're in a rush to get somewhere, and you hit every single light as red, uh, when you don't really care about, you know, getting to someplace on time, it seems like you sail through and you get there faster than you ever imagined. Didn't happen to us this morning on the, or this afternoon on the way here, except it started to feel that way. Like, we're hitting every light. Why are we hitting every light? Uh, but that's just, the way, uh, that's just the way it goes. You know, sometimes axioms, different axioms that we understand in life can be annoying, you know. Uh, you, but, buttered bread, if it falls off the table, or buttered toast, right? If it falls off the table, it always lands which way, right? Of course. Uh, you know, the, uh, the axiom of the softness of the bread, I don't know why I'm on a toast theme already, but the softness of the bread is in direct inverse proportion to the hardness of the butter. Like, why? Come on. They're like frozen chips of butter that come out, and the bread is so soft and warm, and it just doesn't work together well, right? These things are kind of annoying. Or my personal favorite, pay raises. Pay raises that we get are just large enough to increase your taxes and just small enough to have no effect on your take-home pay. I mean, this is just the world we live in, right? It's just the way it is sometimes. But frequently, there are axioms, axioms in life that you know, can be very frustrating or hurtful or difficult, right? The uh, couple that's trying desperately to grow and start their family uh, and it just seems in God's providence it's not going to work the way that they wanted 
Uh, and then you hear about, it seems like everyone else is uh, excited about uh, a newborn that's going to be coming into their home, or they're just going through different challenges. It seems like it's going well for everyone else except for you, right? And this can be a frustrating thing that we deal with. What can be very frustrating in the workplace is when you know, we're trying to act with integrity and in an ethical manner. And it just doesn't seem like you're going to get ahead. It seems like no matter what you do, someone else is going to get ahead. Or you work really hard at something, and uh, someone else slips right into the last second, and they take the, they take the credit for the hard work that you've done. Right? These things are just frustrating realities of life. Or the unethical business person, right, who seems to get ahead, and you just cannot. Um, I have three brothers, and I've had different conversations with them over the years how they've experienced some of the difficulty of trying to get ahead in different aspects of their workplace. And it can be, it can be a very frustrating thing for, for any of us, right? So how should we as believers react to these things in life? When things don't quite go according to expectation, should we take an approach that just says, well, you know, the suitable answer here for living is just going to be to live a little, right? I mean, come on. What's the big deal, right? We just live a little. Believers today are in a society that pressures them to enjoy and pursue the pleasures of this world. Now, make no mistake, there are a lot of amazing, enjoyable things that God's given us, God's good gifts. Right? And as you'll see a little bit later in, in, in the talk this morning as we look through this text, that we as humans have a tendency to take things to extremes. Right? Thankfully, that's never me, except that's always me. Right? We, that we let the pendulum swing hard one way or, or another. So as believers, when we deal with these realities of life um, and these frustrating things that we perceive and that we have happen to us, how are we to respond? You know, it's frustrating at times for the believer when he tries to please God and instead he, just suffers, he or she suffers persecution. It's puzzling to see wicked people prosper. Therefore, what is a believer to do? Let's take a look at Ephesians, uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. So follow along with me, please, as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take a hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. As believers, as we experience some kind of frustration in life, we want to make sure that we don't follow one extreme or another. We don't want to turn to a full-fledged self-centered approach to life, enjoying the pleasures of the world, nor should we take a response as believers and say, God, what gives? What's up? How is this? This is not very good. Right? What's the deal? And we, and we get these frustrations 
that get us all in a lather where we get frustrated with these things? Why is it that when I try and pursue living a, a life that's pleasing to God or a holy life, that I find myself not getting ahead or these blessings that we're supposed to see, uh, receive and see just doesn't seem like it occurs in our lives. How do we respond? What do we do? All of us as believers have faced some kind of frustration that's contrary to our expectations. We may have expected a certain set of events to occur and they did not. We may have seen a person cheating who got ahead or they never got caught and you know, we get blamed for something. So in this text, Solomon, the writer here, recognized that, quote, unfair things were happening all around him all the time. So he begins this discussion by expressing a frustration of a big contradiction that he sees in his life. Verse 15, the first thing I want us to see from our text this afternoon is that what you experience in life is often contrary to expectation. Look again at verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, what's going on in the mind of the writer here? What is in Solomon's worldview? What's in his framework as he's writing these words down? Solomon has been experiencing this conflict in life's observations. He's giving a statement here, and because what he would expect to see in life is based on his understanding of the Mosaic Covenant. See, he would have had in his mind that what he would expect to happen is not actually happening. He would expect that when bad people do bad things, they get punished, right? And when you do good things, you receive blessing, but that's not what he's observing, and so he's finding this, contradict, this contradiction, and he's pointing out some different observations. He notes that in spite of certain activities of a person, righteous or wicked, they come out contrary to expectation. So the first part of verse 15. First part of verse 15, I want us to see, very easy phrase, I think, for us to, uh, to remember, is that bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. This, this word here of righteous or just, depending on the translation that you may be uh, looking at here, is the idea of considering or declaring someone to be righteous or to be just. It's like a stamp of approval. Hey, you are righteous. You are just. Only God is capable of declaring someone to be righteous or just. So I'm, I'm making sure we understand this point here in the text because this is not, in an Old Testament sense, this is not about self-righteousness. This is not someone who's worked hard to achieve a certain status. This is not Pharisaism, so to speak. This is an indication of someone who is a follower of God, someone who is a believer, someone who is just. Only God can declare a person to be so. Since the Old Testament doesn't have this concept of self-righteousness when this word is used, we understand this to be a righteous person. Society thinks that when good people have bad things happen to them, our culture says this, we say this, we feel this. When something bad happens to a person who's a good person, we say, man, that's not fair. 
And, and, and I don't have a problem with saying that statement, so don't listen to the next couple of thoughts I say here as, as, as trying to come down on any one of us, but we tend to misuse the word fair. We tend to use the word fair in terms of what benefits me, right? And, and it depends on, on the perspective of this, right? Uh, when someone is convicted of a crime and they're put in jail as the person who might be on the jury, boy, isn't that a fun responsibility, huh? Yeah, I've enjoyed that, that opportunity on more than one occasion. And it seems like, you know, this person did something wrong, and so we find them guilty, and they, they pay a fine or they go to jail, and we say that's fair. But what about the convict? Not too many guys in prison are saying, I was treated fairly, right? We tend to define fairness from our, from our own perspective. So I want to just kind of caution us a little bit that we don't define what is fair as what benefits me, but the reality is when we see these things happen, it just is not fair. <laughs> it doesn't seem equitable. And Solomon here is observing this contradiction. And then he starts to see it in the opposite of a righteous man. And that is in the second part of verse 15, good things happen to bad people. Second half of verse 15. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, What's going on here? Again, back into the mind of the writer. He's got the Mosaic Covenant from Deuteronomy chapter 4. He really has in mind here the speaking of this judgment that will come upon wickedness. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 40 says this, So shall you keep his statutes and his commandments which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may live long on the land which, which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So someone who has the law of Deuteronomy in their mind that if I do what is right, God's going to give me a long life. To see someone who's doing evil and have their life prolonged is not making sense. Solomon, who had this in his mind and certainly as a king understood this, was frustrated at what he was seeing occurring. David, of course, also struggled with this. Psalm 73 and verse 2. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Even before Solomon wrote his observations of these perceived wrong outcomes in life, David was observing the same thing. Like father, like son. You're seeing the same thing happen. It's not getting better. It seems to be getting worse. The reality is, this is a part of the struggle that believers face in a sin-cursed world. I'll say more about that in a few moments. In 1993, there was a man by the name of Henry Cavanaugh. He was an ex-con who was known for having a hair-triggered temper. temper. One day, he was out and about in the city of Philadelphia, and he mugged an elderly woman. He robbed her. He stole $28. To avoid being caught, he ducked inside a nearby camera store where, to his surprise, he was met by flashing lights, showered with confetti, and handed a check for $1 million because he was the store's one millionth customer. I would go in a camera shop. Like, come on. How's this? No longer needing to steal to make a living, Kavanaugh moved into an upscale apartment, took a photography, became proficient at it. He took pictures of the poor, the homeless, becoming, according to one reviewer, a brilliant interpreter of the plight of the underclass. His photographs showed so much empathy for the subject that it was used in the magazine, magazine campaign for economic justice. What? 
He beat up a lady and took her money. That's not right. Yet when we hear of these things, we're like, yeah, that's sad. And it's frustrating. Nothing is more frustrating to observe these contradictions in life. And, and, and the, the, the concern for us here, like I mentioned a few moments ago, is that we tend to have a response of going to extremes. Fine, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to start robbing people. I, because I got to get mine. Now, we might not take it to that extreme. But let's be honest. We have a tendency to say this is not fair to me, so I'm going to look for ways that I can wiggle and work my way in and not do anything that's overly unethical, but just kind of maybe squeeze it in a little bit. Solomon's going to give some warnings here for us as believers because as humans, we tend to be people of extremes. And this is the reality of living in a sin-cursed world. I'm going to read in, in, in just a moment verses 16 and 17 again, but I've heard many other I've read this in other places, I've heard this from other preachers, that humans have a tendency to take God's good gifts and turn them into some kind of an incorrect extreme. Wine becomes drunkenness. Sex becomes all kinds of things outside of what God intended for a loving marriage relationship. Humanity takes things to extremes. Good food turns into gluttony. See, it's all fun and games until we start taking biblical principles and actually starting to weigh them out how we respond to the truth of God's word. All of us struggle with this. All of us face this reality because we are people of extremes. That's exactly what Satan did in Genesis when he was trying to get the man and the woman to turn away from the goodness of God. God had given them amazing gifts and yet Satan was starting to get them to question whether or not God was good. Ah, oh, come on. Has God really said this? Is this really the right? You know the story. And so for us as believers, we have to be cautious about not becoming people of extremes. And Solomon here is going to give some warnings that these observations that we have about con things that are contrary to what we expect going on not become for us a way to respond incorrectly. Look at verses 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So he's got the, 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 these couple of rhetorical questions here. And that the believer should understand that these contrary experiences that we observe in the world should serve as a warning. And the first warning in verse 16 is this. Don't think that by living righteously, you will escape adversity. Don't think that by doing the right thing, it's all going to go smoothly. Don't think that if I just obey God, that everything's going to work out perfectly. That's just not the reality of the world that we live in. And frankly, nor is it the life that our Savior lived. Hundreds of years before Christ came. Isaiah wrote that he would be the suffering 
servant. Following Jesus is not something that guarantees that things are going to go perfectly smooth. It is a guarantee that we will have hope. That is the promise. That is the assurance. And there's this stark warning here that Solomon's going to give for us not to, to not think that by living righteously you're going to escape adversity. Solomon realizes that searching after wisdom and righteousness is not the end of all things. Earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, he's talking about increasing after wisdom and even pursuing wisdom is like chasing after wind. That's the literal way of saying vanity of vanities. Chasing after these things is like chasing after wind. And I think for us as believers, we need to be cautious and adhere to these warnings. There's this warning that to make sure that you not be shocked at what may actually happen in life. The reality of living in a sin-cursed world is that it often brings heartache in life. Even very recently, listening to a sermon through the reality of the fact that there are times when even in the New Testament scriptures, as the disciples are with Jesus... Why was this man born blind? Why is this happening? What did he do? What did, he do? What did his, the, his, his parents do that caused this sin? Whose fault is this? And Jesus, of course, said none of those things. It's to bring glory to God. Ultimately, for us as believers, we have to be cautious not to allow ourselves to be ruined or shocked Shocked because righteous living does not eliminate adversity. And that's what we see here in verse number 16. Don't be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? In other words, the pure pursuit of trying to do godly stuff to somehow build up merit or somehow build up, you know, that the scales will weigh out more. Well, I did more good things, so that means I'll have less bad things happen. This too ultimately brings destruction. I mean, this is a serious warning. This has got to be kept in context with verse 15 of the frustration of understanding what Solomon is expecting in terms of divine justice. He's expecting when people do something bad, they get judged. The point is not to be shocked or appalled that righteous living that is seeking to please God may result in adverse circumstances. The proper motivation then for righteous living ought not to be to see blessing materialized in our lives. Because a lot of times we have this mentality that I do more stuff for God than God will bless me or at a minimum I'll have less adversity. And frankly, this puts us in no different of a category than any other religion. Whether it's making payments to some kind of a church organization or going to, 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 to do some kind of an act to build up merit because in the hopes that this will bring me good fortune. And instead recognizing that ultimately our merit rests not in who we are but in Christ alone. Solomon here is giving this stark warning here that our pursuits and dealing with the frustrating things that we observe in life should not be to pursue righteousness thinking we're going to get ahead that way. Because ultimately it will destroy us. 
Of course, we want to be cautious not to turn to the opposite extreme. Verse 17. Verse 17 gives us this simple principle that living wickedly is certainly the foolish decision. Look at verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? I want to be careful not to make overstatements. But the text, I think, is rather clear. If you choose to live wickedly, it could result in your death. The warning simply is this. Do not turn to wicked living because God may judge you and it could lead to a premature death. Ephesians 5.18 gives us biblical principles that we should be thinking about in terms of how we are led and follow and, and how we follow the Spirit. This particular verse here is trying to give us a principle or a concept that we're not to be looking at, you know, somehow advocating for a moderate amount of evil. Well, it's okay if you do some wickedness, just not too much because you don't want to die. It's not the point here at all. Ephesians 5.18 doesn't say, don't get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It's not trying to say, this is not a biblical principle for moderation in your drinking. That's not the point of the text at all. The point of that text has to do with being filled with the Spirit. The point of this text is to say, look, you're going to observe frustrating things in life, so don't choose wickedness thinking you can get away with it. Because, I mean, look at all these wicked people. They do bad stuff. They cheat, they lie, and they get ahead. So I'm going to do the same thing. Be warned. Choosing that kind of a life can result in a premature death. I want to make a couple of statements here about the difficulty of this passage. You know, when we read through these things, it's very easy for us to look at it and say, well, you know, let's just live a life of moderation. Again, not the point of the text. We're going to get to the point of the text in just a moment. The point of this text, as we start to understand it, this, this, these two warnings here, this text is not trying to endorse something as a golden mean for Christian living. A classic statement of this position would say this, since there's no correspondence between virtue and happiness and between vice and misery, man should avoid either extreme. As one author further put it, stated bluntly, don't be too holy, don't be too wicked, sin to a moderate degree. Yeah, no. It's not what the scriptures are teaching. Certainly not what Solomon is trying to get us to understand here. Of course, the major point is it doesn't fit the immediate context. Solomon's struggling with this understanding of divine retribution and the golden mean here of, well, don't do this too much, don't do that too much, and just kind of live a life of moderation. That's not the point of the text. His observations were contradicting the law. Certainly, he was not attempting to teach of a life of balance that's sort of loosely defined. The reality is we experience instances of unfairness all the time. Living more righteously does not mean that you'll experience more problems or frustrations in life. Certainly turning to a wicked lifestyle is not the solution as it may result to an untimely end. You know, by God's grace, we are very thankful for how, I mean, I, for many of us, we live in amazing safety. We really do. There are so many people around the world who do not enjoy 
the safety of what we have. In part, as we celebrate this weekend, Memorial Day, for the amazing place where God has placed us to be able to serve and love and worship and expand the gospel for his glory. Amazing. I think sometimes, though, as we deal with these things, we, we, we find it unfair, we find it frustrating, and we, we want to try and find some kind of a happy middle. And the reality is that's not what God has called us to do. So as we observe these contradictions, as we observe these things in life, the main point that Solomon is trying to drive us toward is in verse 18. And that is very simply this. Believers continually fear God. Believers continually fear God. Look at verse 18, if you would. It is good that you should take a hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Grasp this idea here of taking hold and not letting go. It's good that you should take hold of this. Don't withhold your hand from it. This idea of both physical as well as an intellectual meaning is understood here. Of course, in this context, he's talking about it in an intellectual sense. How we grasp and take hold of the concept that when we will fear God, we will come forth from the possibility of going to either extreme. The person who fears God, who understands God's sovereignty, the one who understands God's control, who understands the love of God and the fact that we are here as his vessels to communicate his gospel, as Romans even teaches us, ultimately for his glory, when we hold on to both of those things, we'll avoid both of those other extremes. The believer needs to understand the foundation of the proper life principle. We see that in this first part of 18. The reality is we're to fully comprehend that God is the one who is sovereign. The providence of God, that is the normal working of God in everyday life. To carry out, to carry out his plans for our lives. This is where our confidence should reside. It's a dependence and a trust on him that is done simply by obeying his commands. Oh, that we would sing the children's song from many, many years ago that many of us have sung if we would just simply trust and obey. There's no other way. It's true to be happy in Jesus, but simply trusting and obeying him. But yet we want to come up with all kinds of ways to work both ends to the middle, to our own ends, instead of ultimately for God's glory. This providence of God, this dependence on him by obeying his commands, this is the proper motivation that God is looking for, who is the sustainer of all things, the one whom we ought to fear and worship reverently. You know, when we face difficulty and we face trials... It ultimately is a recognition that we do not trust God. I mean, all of us believe that God is in control of all things. So when something goes wrong and we put forth our best effort and we've been obedient and something goes south and we say, God, why did you do this? We're ultimately getting mad at God. And that's not fearing God. 
That's not trusting God. Would that I would have that response when things don't go according to the plan that I've laid out, even that I've prayed about, even that I've read my Bible about, even when I have prayed with others about, and the plans go the wrong direction. The warning here in Scripture is to say this, don't abandon those things. Don't turn to extreme wickedness. Don't think that by just trying harder, I'm going to all of a sudden get ahead. One will destroy you. One could take your life early. Instead, as a follower of God, fear me. I'm the one, God says, who is sovereign and in control of all things. Remember, Job is the one who, descri- who is described as a God-fearer. He was a, quote, blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. What is more significant is that this understanding of fearing God is what was that kept him in his relationship with God even during difficult times. Job chapter 4, when he was in the middle of this questioning by one of his friends, is not your fear of God your confidence? His life had been destroyed. I don't have problems compared to Job. I hope I never have problems compared to Job. And yet it was his fear of God that kept him there. So, you know, as we're talking about this fear of God, the believer continually fears God in order to have a proper focus on life. This is in the second half of verse 18. Fear God. It's incorrect to think in terms of one extreme or another, to reconcile what's going on. Fearing God is what is central for the believer's life, particularly when you read this in the Old Testament. Someone who is a God-fearer is someone who was a believer, right? They continually believed in the promises of God. This fear of God resulted in no fear of condemnation. So when we talk about a fear of God, let's, let's have the proper view of God, right? I may or may not have been going a little bit fast to get here this afternoon, maybe, Yeah, go ahead. Judge me. That's fine. (laughs) Want to make sure I got here on time, right? And as I was driving along, there was a few spots along I-94 between uh, Southfield and and getting off here at Belleville Road. And what was I looking for? Oh, come on. You guys look, do you guys look for cops too? You look for cops. Yeah, just a couple times. That's a fear, Right? My older brother is in law enforcement. He's a state trooper in Pennsylvania. And I'm, I'm afraid of him. All right, let's just be honest. All right, I'm afraid of him. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I was watching at certain key spots right near the airport. Right? And then there's some other tricky spots. I'm like, I'm, that's a fear that I'm going to get caught. It's not the kind of fear that we're talking about with God. We're talking about a reverential trust. We're talking here about a love and an affection, a fear of, 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 of even displeasing. We've all had a professor or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher or someone in our lives that we wanted to please out of love and commitment for them because of the love and the commitment that they showed to you. It's that same kind of reverential trust, that love and affection towards someone We certainly do not want to step outside of the love of God. We don't want to act out in treason against the one who redeemed me. There is a fear of the consequences of sin, but it is ultimately because of the love of Christ that constrains us, that controls us. This fear of God. 
This is what believers are to focus on. The believer is a person who fears God. They will not become focused on selfish living because they're focused on the love of God. The person who fears God is not someone who turns to themselves, but rather they're focused on their righteous living because they want to honor God. All people, all of us, have some kind of a concept of fairness. You know, societal norms have taught us one way or another. When a person commits a crime, right, they get punished for it. Yet we as believers, as we live in the reality of of, of being in a sin-cursed world, and as we look at the struggles all around us, Solomon gives us a warning here. Hey, believer, don't think that if I do a bunch of good stuff that all of a sudden it's going to go well. It's only going to destroy you. You're going to keep pursuing and chasing after those things for for righteousness sake, and it could destroy you. Hey, believer, if you see these difficulties are going on in the world around you and you think, you know what? Who cares anymore? I'm just going to live a little. I'm just going to make these sinful choices and maybe I'll get ahead. I mean, the people who cheat at work do. I might as well cheat too. Careful. Could result in a premature death. Man, this is a serious warning. Scripture's filled with serious warnings. So for us as believers, what is the right response? We fear God in the same way that Job did. We trust God, the loving hand of God, guiding us and guarding us all along the way. Like the psalmist said, as he would be in the middle of these difficult circumstances, like angels all around him, showering down the love, protection, and affection of God because he feared God. How do we respond to the difficulty that we see in life? Believers fear God. May God help us to demonstrate that in the reality of living in this sin-cursed world. Let's close our time with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for these truths from your word. God, I pray that you would help us respond to it in a way that demonstrates that we are dependent upon you. God, help us not to be people of extremes. It's so easy for us to want to think we have to get ahead our way, doing our thing. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you. We love you, and we thank you for these truths from your word, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.